Mike Scott is a property litigator and partner at Cripps Pemberton Greenish. On the 1st of May, he becomes senior partner of the firm, which combined Kent-based Cripps Harry's Hall and Kensington-based Pemberton Greenish in December 2018. Prior to the merger, he'd been head of real estate at Cripps since 2015. Mike, many thanks indeed for joining me today. First of all, congratulations on becoming senior partner or being elected senior partner. What does the appointment mean to you? Thanks, Sarah. Gosh, what is the point? It, I mean, it means everything to me, honestly. So it's, it's what I uh, wanted when I first started uh, working uh, with what was then Cripps Harris Hall in 1994. Um, I, for a long time, um, just wanted to just become a partner. And then as soon as I became a partner, I wanted to uh, become as influential as I could on the strategic leadership of the firm. So um, to become senior partner who is responsible for setting the strategic agenda and direction of the firm uh, was um, very much a dream come true, honestly. And um, and I can't wait to start on the 1st of May. Fantastic. Um, it obviously carries a lot of weight then, the appointment. Um, and does it for you have particular resonance and weight um, coming as it does in the midst of a global pandemic? Does it add an extra dimension to it in terms of a challenge for you? Um, certainly, uh, and, and, and obviously, I think um, in some respects, it's the perfect time to be starting and, and taking on this kind of position, because although we've been phenomenally busy with clients and helping clients through these difficult times, we've also had a chance to take stock of where we are, not only in the marketplace, but also uh, in in the world, if you like, in the business community and our community and and um, and, and as I say, in, in as a smaller part of the UK economy and really to work out what more we want to do going forward and um, beyond just providing legal services. So I think it's given us a chance to take stock of that. And there's quite a lot going on internally at the moment um, around not only setting a new strategic agenda going forward, which obviously I'm leading on, um, but also very much looking at becoming, um, to use a phrase that's gained traction in recent years, a more purpose-driven business, um, not just focusing on the profits, although inevitably important, but, but and not only putting clients at the heart of everything we do, which is obviously what you'd expect every professional services firm to do, but also looking at um, how we can make a, a positive impact on other areas uh, in both our communities uh, and also inevitably looking at what we could do uh, um, for the environment as well. So all these things are becoming increasingly important. And I think any progressive business is expected to do its bit in that respect. And that's what we're looking to do. OK, so in terms of priorities for you over the coming um, months and, and years, how how do you perceive that they're going to take shape? What what's um, front and, and foremost of your mind? Well, for me, um, in, in my role as senior partner, I, I've already identified three priorities. Uh, there will be you know, they will change inevitably, mm-hmm. uh, but at the moment, it is uh, looking at our organisational purpose. As I say, uh, we've come through. Uh, a really positive merger with Pemberton Greenish, which has meant that any firm, once they come through a merger, needs to just take stock of who they are, what they are, what makes them uh, who they are now. And and we're, we're going through that exercise. So that that whole purpose and culture piece is important. And then uh, business generation. It's using that platform 
um, of having worked out who we stand for and where we position ourselves in the market, it is then really going to market uh, in a very uh, positive and proactive way, which is actually the timing for that. It couldn't be better now. I think we all feel, don't we, that we're emerging, if you like, from this sort of chrysalis of lockdown uh, and we're looking at uh, the new opportunities that are out there. And, and I do sense among clients and also in the legal profession, certainly in our firm, that there's a, a real positive vibe uh, that is emerging uh, for 2021 and, and probably going into 2022, notwithstanding all the sort of slight gloom stories about a possible, uh, you know, recession of sorts that I think that, you know, there is there are reasons to be optimistic about the real estate market anyway. OK, um, you touched there on the merger with Pemberton Greenish. Has that worked in practice? It's worked pretty much exactly as we hoped it would. Um, and when we first met the, the PG guys and girls, they, we immediately thought we, we can work with these uh, with these people. They've got the same attitude to uh, service delivery. Uh, they, of course, have some wonderful lawyers and some brilliant you know, clients that they brought to the party. And we really enjoyed getting to know them. And then, of course, it meant that in, as a merged entity, we can provide a wider offering to those clients. And then to our pre-merger, Crips pre-merger clients, if you like, we can offer some of the more specialist services that, that PG has, and not least the, the leasehold and franchisement team and the residential estates team, uh, yeah. which is something we just didn't have. So it was very much a jewel in the crown. Um, with every merger, there are there are cultural bedding down issues that that that, that have to be um, addressed, but they were by no means greater than we thought they'd be, and they, and and by no means uh, an issue. So we've really enjoyed uh, getting to know each other. And it, now, gosh, it seems like a long time ago with everything that's happened since, but it's it's working really, really well, and we're enjoying very much. And when you think about the real estate context, I mean, what are the particular benefits that it's brought um, to your offering? I mean, you mentioned obviously the leasehold picture. What beyond that um, has shaped the practice since the merger? I, it, it, it's it's probably the, the client space. Um, it complements ours really well in terms of um, we can provide uh, additional skills, a wider range of skills to those clients. But getting to know those clients and the demands and needs of those clients, they you know they do have different needs from from clients that we'd worked with before, um, particularly the London estates. They ha there are peculiar uh, pressures and needs that those estates have, and working out what those are and how we can respond to those uh, as a merged entity has been really interesting and, and I personally have really enjoyed it. Um, so it has um, also provided us uh, inevitably with uh, the London base that we were looking for, mm -hmm. uh, which we can now build on because it's a very solid foundation already. We can build on that by uh, recruiting more people in in order to widen our reach into the London markets. And happily, over, I mean, only in the last six months, we've recruited two partners, two associates into those teams. And, and that that's what we intend to do going forward, too. So we're looking to grow uh, much more um, and and establish you know, a, a larger footprint in London. Um, the headquarters, I think, will always remain in Tunbridge Wells. It's a, a, a large office in itself. Um, but we'd like to ideally get to a point in the next two or three years where our London office 
comprises something like a hundred number where it's about 60, 65 now. So that gives you an idea of what we want to do with that office. Okay. And from a client perspective, what's the response been to the merger? I mean, you, you've talked about how positively it's gone from your perspective. What sort of feedback um, have you had from clients? Well, it has only been positive, and you might say I would say that, wouldn't I? But it genuinely has. And what the the message has been very much very excited about what the merger can bring for them as clients. But please don't rip up the rule book. They're absolutely delighted with the teams that they have worked with over the years. So the worst, the la- the last thing we should have done is to go in and say, right, a brand new team for these clients. Um, uh, let's let's change everything. No, that was not ever going to be the plan. The plan was really just to sort of uh, put a, a, a sort of wider and broader team around the core team that had served those clients in the past and not change too much, only look to improve with further investment in, in tech, uh, further investment in terms of uh, back office, in, uh, backup, if you like. And that enables those lawyers to do lawyering and only lawyering and get and and not have to be bothered with some of the things that got in the way previously. So I'd like to think that they've seen uh, an enhanced level of service delivery. And I think they'd say that they have, but you'd have to ask them. (laughs) Okay. Um, Let's talk a little bit then about your background as a a property litigator. I mean, periods of economic turmoil are often followed by an uptick in litigation. Does that chime as what you're currently seeing in the market? Has has there been an increase in real estate litigation? Uh, Definitely an increase in uh, um, for the real estate litigation teams um, in terms of workload. Going to court in terms of pure litigation, not a huge uptick in that. Um, It has been difficult for the courts to manage much of the litigation. So in many ways, it's encouraged parties to try and resolve their disputes in other ways, which is a good thing. Um, So but yes, there inevitably has been a huge uptick in in needing to provide some handholding in crisis management mode. Um, and that was very much the first half of the lockdown was focusing on crisis management, uh, taking people hand, you know, hand in hand through that process, dealing with the you know, huge changes that were introduced almost on a daily or weekly basis by the government in terms of um, helping and, and, and those measures that came out and navigating your way through those. Um, that has uh, led to a second half of the year was probably more. Um, finding a, not a new normal, but a way of, of navigating through these waters in a way that allowed the businesses to continue. And so a more long term assistance was was provided to those clients rather than the sort of very much crisis management mode that we were in in the first half of lockdown. Um, but yes, uh, um, you know, sadly for clients, our property lit- litigation teams have been phenomenally busy and that hasn't that hasn't dipped at all. And I do see that continuing into into the rest of 2021 i say sadly for clients but hopefully we can you know we can help them through Mm. and when you say there's an awful lot of um advisory work on in the real estate litigation context what are the particular areas where you're having to provide that guidance so it's with our transactional colleagues too but it's in, in relation to obviously there are very few options left to landlords in terms of enforcement at the moment until the moratorium uh, comes to an end in june 
Um, and therefore, um, you know, when you're really only left with being able to issue proceedings for rent and the court uh, procedures or the courts being sort of clogged up a little bit, so you can't necessarily push that through very quickly, um, you are pushed to doing, to be fair, what the landlords did do naturally from the off, which is a collaborative approach to engaging with tenants. Um, and so together with our transactional colleagues, we were sort of um, at, at the beginning hastily putting together concessionary arrangements and um, deeds of variation where uh, ordinary rents were being converted to turnover rents, which is obviously the order of the day and remains the order of the day at the moment, to be honest. Um, taking people through the process of uh, particularly our landlord clients handholding through the CVA processes. And it's fair to say that there was a bit of game playing and there still is a bit of game playing going on by some tenants who are using uh, not only a slightly soft insolvency regime that we have um, in this country to um, cherry pick, obviously, the stores that they had already possibly decided to do away with way before lockdown, um, but using those circumstances to get what they want. Uh, so and yet you had to sort out the wheat from the chaff. So you needed to work out which tenants truly did need help. And those that were playing the game and and uh, those who really did need help never never worried about obviously being open about their their management accounts and how things were working so that they uh, the landlords were quite happy uh, to provide them with assistance going forward. And I have to say um, uh, the code of practice was excellent. It, you know, it encouraged uh, everybody to work to, towards that more collaborative approach. But actually, it was it was sort of happening before the code came into came into force that was more a reflection of what responsible landlords were doing anyway um, and I was I thought it was brilliant how landlords approached it all in, the, in and have continued to do to do so uh, with the with the tenants and I, I haven't really seen any sign um, of uh, landlords being unreasonable in in the circumstances at all I've seen one or two tenants play the game a bit and it's been hard for landlords to um, to sort that, to work out who's who's truly in trouble and who and who isn't so much. Um, but that's where I think our our help has been, you know, most valued is is sort of helping landlords through that process where they've had they had a a barrage of of tenants demanding almost uh, assistance from the off. Okay. Um... So you've, you've seen some collaboration through this whole period. Um, what do you think will be the sort of long term impact on landlord and tenant relations going forward after this period? <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, I think the um, the the approach will will stay to you know to a great extent. I think um, it, it was already happening that tenants were become had become customers more than tenants, if you like, customers of landlords, where landlords were were absolutely appreciative of the fact that it, it wasn't enough to just simply say, here's the lease, pay me the rent and I'm, I'm off for the for the next five years. Uh, the, the support needs to be there, not only in relation to the unit itself, um, but if it's high street or whatever it happens to be, your shopping centre, there has to be an environment that the landlord is uh, responsible for creating uh, in order to generate footfall and create space that is encouraging of, of, of footfall, whether it's uh, well, particularly in relation to retail, but also in relation to attractive office space too and residential. Um, so creating the space around what they let has become more important than ever. Um, so I think the 
the relationship between landlord tenant has shifted to much more parity, much greater parity. And I think that is here to stay. Um, I think in some cases, uh, you know, maybe the measures weren't weren't landlord friendly enough. There was a lot of talk at the time, wasn't there, about, you know, some rent support being provided, whether to landlord or tenant, where the rent wasn't coming in. And, and in the end, you know, that didn't happen. So the, so the support was very much for the tenant and the landlord was expected to just put up with it. And, and when that period of time extended to a year, really, uh, that landlords are expected to put up with this huge discount in their rent roll, um, you begin to think, well, well, who's looking after the landlord here? And there wasn't much help in terms of rates either. And that's still true. And so I know not many tears are shed for, for the big landlords, but but, you know, hugely challenging times to experience rent discounts of up to 50 percent in some cases and in some cases even more and and, and with nothing else coming in in terms of support so it can't continue for for much longer and and hopefully it won't and landlords are obviously looking to to sort of repurpose where they can and to other um, ways of releasing value in their portfolios but um I think uh, there, there, there needs to be there needed there, there could have been a little bit more support of landlords, but I don't think that will mean that there's suddenly uh, a reverse of the, what has changed, uh, what has been brought in in terms of parity of relationship between landlord and tenant. I think that's a good thing, and I think that will stay. Okay, um, thinking about leasing going forward. Um, do you anticipate changes in, in how they're structured in the future? I mean, we've, we've already experienced shorter terms. You've already touched on turnover rents. But can you envisage other longer term changes to the leases themselves? Yeah, I think there's there is a demand for greater flexibility, isn't there? And I think, you know, we are looking at a government, the government's announced isn't it fairly fairly well hidden announcement but it was there in december that they're going to look at the 54 act mm-hmm. um, and i think that could that could extend couldn't it to the this idea of extending the period uh, of a term of a lease that would be automatically excluded unless brought inside the act so reversing that process so it's presumed to be excluded that would introduce a more streamlined uh, process of leasing for shorter term leases um, I think uh, the greater flexibility and the need for them to be uh, in the form of a model lease that is truly accepted industry wide uh, will follow so that 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 short term letting process is is so much quicker and so much easier and so much akin, more akin to, uh, you know, almost buying utility services um, and, and, and doing it in that way. Um, aside from that, I mean, it, in terms of uh, you know, other flexibility within the lease. I'm not sure it, it needs to be there, but certainly we're already seeing a, a great, much greater move away from, you know, even 10, 10 page leases are too long for, for those type of lettings. You know, something like a two page, three page document that everybody can understand is something that's much more routine. Um, and so, yeah, I, I can see that kind of product becoming commonplace, if, even if it's not already, which it is in some places. Okay, um, and tell me, we've we've focused a little bit on on how um, the litigation side of the practice is, is working. Um, how have transaction levels been for you as a team over the last twelve months, and and what sort of bearing has that had on the type of work that you've been doing as a team? 
So the transactions have, have, have increased in number, um, uh, but probably um, in terms of um, how long they take to, to get through and in terms of the unusual nature of them, they've probably, you know, they've increased too. So um, it's meant that there's been an awful lot of work for the lawyers um, uh, with almost every uh, lease being a non-routine transaction because it involved complex turnover provisions or or, or complex, uh, you know, provisions in, rela- in relation to tenant flexibility. But um, so that's led to an increase in work. It hasn't necessarily been of a huge amount of value to the landlord clients, of course. Um, so we've had to, um, you know, manage manage that process and make sure there wasn't a disproportionate uh, increase in the level of legal fees for clients because because it all has to be proportionate to the value that they get from it. Um, investment deals they have been there. I mean, there. There's money out there um, uh, wanting to invest in in the deals, and actually we've seen greater investment uh, transaction uh, um, numbers than we had perhaps in the previous year, possibly because prices became more realistic suddenly, um, that the deals got a little bit softer and therefore the money found a home where previously they couldn't find a home because the, the prices were too high. Um, and certainly in some of the more attractive uh, asset classes like logistics and warehousing and, and, and data centers and things like that, we've seen a, a huge interest in it and, and people have been prepared to pay, you know, quite high sums for assets with fairly low yields that you might not have seen you know even you know two years ago but they're prepared to do it because they see them as safe assets in the real estate market so those sort of transactions have increased real estate finance those deals have increased in number but lowered in value we've seen as alternative lenders have come into the market where senior lenders haven't been prepared necessarily to lend or refinance um, the refinancing and also alternative lending has seen an uptick in, in activity too. So it, quite different uh, profile of, of transactions from the one we might have had three years to three years ago, but but increase in in terms of activity. Okay, um, perhaps we could have a, a little um, think now about uh, law reform. Um, we touched on the 54 Act just now, but another area of quite significant reform is on the leasehold side. Given that leaseholds um, now forms a, a big part of the picture at Cripps, Pemberton, Greenish, um, what are your thoughts on the proposals? I know that we don't have the exact detail yet. We have the law commission reports, and then we obviously have the statement from the government earlier on this year. Um, what, as a firm, are you doing to prepare for those? And, and what sort of approach do you take to leasehold reform? Well, as you know, there's a there's a dedicated team in the London office uh, on this, led by uh, Kerry Glanville, who's uh, a leading practitioner in that area. But um, uh, I uh, would expect me to know the uh, the basics as I do um, as to how that might impact on our clients and, and what we ought to be doing to 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 maybe see, seeking to alleviate the impact of that on clients, but also to model our business on what clients will need going forward. I mean, the, the biggest the biggest change, obviously, that might come through and looks as though uh, Robert Jenrick is keen to introduce is this abolition of marriage value. Um, that is the you know, it, it, it will have a huge impact on our clients and across the board. I, you know, I think it's 
it, it, it's billions potentially that could be wiped off uh, the value of of those um, residual estates, uh, which which uh, won't be worth as much in terms of the transactions that follow on enfranchisement. So, um, you know, that it, we, it looks like the government's intent on doing that. So if that is the case, um, we need to look at how that translates um, and whether it is as simple as having an online calculator to assess uh, those values going forward. Um, but uh, at the moment, it's really hard to see you know, how, um, uh, how I suppose significantly the government is treating the lobbying of the uh, estates in particular. Now they've they've definitely you know coordinated their efforts and they are. Um, making their voices heard. Um, but it remains to be seen as to how that will pan out. I think it's going to be another year, isn't it, before the draft legislation is likely to come out. Um, and it is right that the process should be simplified. There's no doubt about that. Um, uh, it's just a question of, of, of making sure the interests are properly balanced, because if you wipe off that kind of um uh a level of um uh, value to 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 some of these assets then that has an impact on the investment that can be made in the surrounding areas um which is critical to everybody who is a stakeholder in those areas so it it is not a simply a case of 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 sort of taking money from from the wealthy estates it it impacts on everybody so um so that's a lobbying process that inevitably we need to help clients through and then in terms of modeling our services going forward um you know there there is the uh potential for common hold to come in uh to take uh or have a role in this and and inevitably there will be enfranchisement and lease extension activity that will follow through from both before and after those changes um so that team will be important for both our clients and for our firm uh in in you know for the long term future i think still yeah you touched on common hold there. Um, what's your view of common hold? I I don't I don't feel qualified to to really answer. I think it, it I I can see that it it could be a simpler alternative, um, but beyond that, I think it's one for my uh, for my residential estates colleagues to comment on because I don't know enough of the detail of what how it would change in order to um, address some of the issues that are there in place at the moment. Okay, and when you think about the issues that are there at the moment, um, and you have feedback perhaps from developer clients who who are looking at forms of tenure, um, have you encountered um, sort of doubts that have been raised about it in the past from your clients? About common hold or about uh, any form of? Sorry, about common hold in particular. Yeah, I mean, it had, didn't, didn't take off when it was first introduced, did it? And we thought it might. And uh, I remember doing a piece at the time uh, for um, some of our, our house builder clients and developer clients in, in the more traditional house builder mold. And, um, and, and it just didn't take off in the public perception. So it wasn't attractive. And in the end, they just reverted back to, you know, granting long leases. And that has its own problems. And inevitably, you know, we, we saw the ground rent escalation issues build up over the last few years and their concerns about that. So all of these issues have to be addressed because the ground rent model and estate charge and, and, and model and this feeling that you don't have the same vested interest in, in the asset that you live in, uh, they, those things have to be addressed. And Commonhold had the right idea. It's just that it hadn't caught hold of the public 
uh, interest. So that's the key. It's how this it's, it's in the communication and messaging. Um, but we haven't seen take up yet. And uh, that doesn't look like changing in terms of our developer client base in the, in the short term future. OK. Um, one of the things that I know you've done a lot of work on over the last few years is AI and, and technology more, more generally. Um, adoption of tech, tech in, in the real estate estate space has obviously been gathering pace and I think the pandemic has only really served to accelerate that. Um, we've, we've seen, for example, digital signatures um, really starting to become embedded over this last year. Um, how have your clients reacted to that? Um, with only one exception that I can think of, they've absolutely adopted it lock, stock and barrel. I think it's it's been so easy uh, for everybody um, and made life so much easier. And then the final hurdle is is being you know is the land registry accepting DocuSign uh and when 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 that skittle went down you suddenly you know had a, a sort of unfettered route through to proper digital signature and and you know in terms of litigation it's it's been quite easy for some time to do that uh, to use electronic signatures um in terms of land documentation and transactions it's been harder and as i say the land registry accepting docusign has been a big breakthrough so um so yeah we've we've seen a very willing client base uh, very happy to to accept that um uh, along with our reassurances of course that it works you know they needed to know that there there were no problems here and there were going to be no problems in in challenging and and when you can give the assurance with 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 software like DocuSign, then then and and others, there are other alternatives that it it it, it does work uh, well and it makes life an awful lot easier. And those things are here to stay. I mean, you know, that isn't that is where lockdown has accelerated the pace of change that was um, the change was there already and it was starting to happen. But it's it's probably concertinaed three or four years of progress into one year, and that's not just in the form of electronic signatures. It's in the form of um you know things like this virtual uh um uh you know video conferencing but also uh document automation and ai um i don't know whether lockdown has resulted in a greater sort of uh incubation activity by which i mean there's been more r d work going on uh behind the scenes within the lockdown environment because but i have definitely seen in the last three or four months more products coming through that seem to have been as a result of uh, a lockdown period of sort of people people at their homes working out how to come up with solutions and and the R&D guys coming up with more and more suggestions for how it might work and interacting more, I think, with their customer base. So if it's legal tech with the lawyers, if it's prop tech with the property industry. Um, so much more listening seems to be going on among the tech guys in, uh, in terms of producing their their products, which has been which has been a good thing. In the past, um, I think you've spoken about the potential for technology to share tasks and work streams across different um, organisations. Um, so, for example, automatic assignment of tasks from an agent to an asset manager to a lawyer. Um, has that concept moved any closer to reality over this period? Not uh, only in relation at the start. So um, the, the, the easiest way to move it forward is to have create your portal. Um, you give access to the agents to the portal. They put in the heads of terms that creates your first draft. And that's a great start. 
but it needs to move on. So the way that it get it moves on is then to have a live interactive case management, transaction management uh, piece where the agent and the client can interact with how the transaction is being managed in, on, on a, in a live basis. That has that's received um, some interest in some areas and less in others because people don't want to have to take the active step of logging into something in order to see where it's at and, and working out what it may need to do to contribute. They like to receive an alert that tells them to do something and they're happy to click on a link to take them there. Um, but the but to have to proactively go onto a portal to work out whether that isn't and I get that that isn't quite so attractive. So we've been working on the first bit is easy, as I say, because the agent has an, uh, an incentive to, to to put the heads of terms into the portal and generate the first draft uh, for the lawyers. And then that gets off. And so you've, you've reduced what might have been a 48 hour or two or three day process to a matter of hours. And the first draft is off. Bang. And, and you've, you've started the whole process. Um, but we then need to uh, ensure that everybody's also working towards moving that transaction along. And so I think we need to work more with the with the tech guys to work out how we trigger those automatic alerts going out probably to the phones uh, to say, OK, needs pushing along. It's been two or three days. Can the agent help to do that? And having that whole seamless uh, interactivity between the lawyer and client and agent and tech can help with that but not get in the way of it. So um, it, it's, it's got to be proactive rather than expect people to log on. Mm. And, and how far away do you think that seamless processing of that information and, and that whole um, piece is? Do you, do you think it's years away or are we moving very much closer to that? Yeah, I think um, the first bit's there. Um, the, the, the bit from start to finish in terms of holistic transaction management I think we are one to two years away from having a perfect product I'd like to think it would be less than a year in, and, I, and I can envisage that for one or two of our clients it will be because they're, they're they're very much they're very keen to be part of it and therefore where you've got every stakeholder are keen to be part of it you're, you're bound to make quicker progress um, and the impatient element of me would want that to happen within six months of the realistic side of me will say it might be more like 12 but it, it should be there um, and we have spent more time over the last 12 months uh, investing in in this process so have clients that me it should mean that we'll be there quicker than we would otherwise have been but for lockdown so it does have some benefits <laughs> um, and, and just more generally I mean how do you think lawyers can collaborate with the real estate industry to help create those greater procedural efficiencies I think taking ownership of that process is something that we lawyers can can do to help the clients. Clients have got enough on their plates at the moment. Um, and, and of course, lawyers have too. But but, it, it, you know, that is a role that we can lead on because we we understand process. We understand project management. We generally, if you're of a certain size, you've got a, a good tech capability, a good tech support. Uh, in terms of both IT and project management. So you can do this for the clients. So why wouldn't you take a lead on it? And I would be surprised if a client turned around and said, oh, no, I don't really want you to help me through that process. Um, so I think it's taking ownership and, and leading on it. That, and that's what we lawyers need to do more of. Sometimes we're inclined to think we should wait for the client to give 
the nod or, or the or the lead take the lead on it but but of course we don't have to wait for that okay um and as a firm i know that you've been working with machine learning software uh, with a view to it helping the due diligence and document automation process. Um, where is the firm now in, in terms of embedding that? And and what has it delivered so far in, in terms of efficiencies? So um, the, 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 the machine learning on terms of due diligence has provided real efficiencies on portfolio sales or acquisitions. That's where it's truly delivered value because it can scan, you know, hundreds of leases uh, so much quicker than us and pick out uh, the clauses that we've asked it to pick out. It does require, it needs to be taught, um, but that's fine. That's still a lot quicker than us uh, doing it and it needs to be checked. Um, but again, it's still much quicker than us doing it alone. So that that sort of technology has been valuable already. Uh, where we are really interested in um, it providing day you know, day-to-day uh, efficiencies is is in the field of uh, day-to-day DD. So um, the sort of product products um, that that look at the land registry titles are able to pull them out, uh, pull out relevant clauses within those conveyances and documents that are on the land registry portal, uh, and and meaningfully export them into a report almost within seconds and minutes of, of, of actually looking, putting in series of titles. And there are a number of products out there that we've been talking to, and they're very good now. You know, they, 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 they are ready to be to be used and to provide, you know, huge value to the lawyers uh, that use them. And that's on a daily basis, not just on the on huge transactions. Um, so really interested in those. Um, we've been talking to Orbital Witness a lot and we're um uh you know we we you know, we will be using them and do have been using them uh, and there are you know one or two others out there too um so there's an awful lot there out there it's just a question of gosh picking the the right one it's quite hard it's a, it's a, like buying your latest iphone you know immediately you buy it there's another one that's just popped out and you have to just make a decision at some point and commit <laughs> yeah um, I think you've mentioned previously that it's conceivable that with the advent of AI and um, automated document production, blockchain and Bitcoin, um, that a time could be predicted when real estate transactions could be undertaken in minutes rather than weeks. Um, how close to that are we? Years away, I think, in terms of blockchain transaction. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, when it first came out and gathered traction, it, it was all very much lauded as being a two or three year process before we'd all be on it. And and no, that's not, I don't think, realistic because I don't think the client's comfortable with it. We've actually, and we may not be representative of the market, I don't know, but we've only had one client uh, who's wanted to transact transact in any meaningfully, meaningful way with Bitcoin. Um, and, uh, and and none of the institutional clients or even the, the, the mid-tier prop codes have, have been interested in in that at this point in time. I mean, it may be that we're a conservative industry. It's people claim that we are. I'm not sure that that's fair. Um, but but actually, um, I can see, you know, there, I can't see much um, appetite for, 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 for using either um, blockchain or alternative e-currencies at this point in time. But it, it is, you know, the interest is gathering and therefore it probably means that we'll see more transactions or more clients saying, yes, I'd like to to test this out 
um, but not at the moment, not yet. I think it's years plural. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, and in terms of tech then and, and the real estate picture, I mean, where do you see it having the greatest efficiencies or delivering the greatest efficiencies going forward? In terms of, sorry, tech, real estate tech or legal tech? Sorry, real estate tech. Tech. Um, I think um, of greatest interest over uh, the last year or so have been, well, actually it's been two or three years before, the way that offices are used, using sensors in your office place to work out how your office is being used now, because you sure as hell we're going to see a change of, uh, of the way that we use offices going forward. They're going to become more collaborative spaces. So um, you may not want to have banks of desks because you might find by using tech uh, with, those, with those desk sensors that, that many people use these days, you find that it's never occupied because they're either at home or they're using the collaborative space much more. Um, so that, that use of tech has been has been really good. Um, I think in terms of, um, you know, uh, identifying other areas of, of prop tech, I mean, you've got obviously monitoring the footfall and the way people use space and the way people you should design your space, depending on how people use it. Technology has obviously been in that space for two or three years and should be used more and more. Um, and then when you look at the sort of tech in, in the terms of the construction industry, um, you know, we we've just started acting for a client who who is is absolutely serious in building all of their units their residential units using a, a version of 3d printing uh with 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 the design uh and the and the way that it will operate as a smart building and in terms of uh obviously using um uh the environment or the sun or the wind and, and the heat pumps and it, it's they, they are extraordinary units and the use of tech in that whole process has been phenomenal and that's only really been around in the last in the last two to three years and i didn't think when i first you know sort of explored this world of, of prop tech you know two or three years ago that actually in two or three years time we'd be acting for developers who are actually starting to build in that way um and it, it's true it's unusual there are not everybody's doing this but um they they're not getting there's no shortage of funding out there for them there are lots of investors are very very interested in this type of construction going forward so that that, that part of prop tech is is very interesting and that is gathering pace mm, okay um, just to wrap up then, um, you began your career as a trainee at Crips. Um, when you reflect back on your career, are there points um, where you were able to accelerate it um, and that really sort of stand out as, as being particular occasions that have helped along your trajectory to become senior partner? Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, so one thing is 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 a a, a, a a mentor, if you like, someone who you identify as being somebody you respect, somebody you can learn from and someone you can maybe get your claws into in terms of, um, you know, learning as much as fast as possible. And if, if you're able to help them in their world, then they will help you in your world. So having uh, identifying a mentor and a sponsor uh, is is critical I think and helps enormously uh, and then being um, uh, I, I think behaving like your next promotion uh, ahead of that promotion is, is key too so um, 
pretending you're a partner before you're a partner and behaving that way and and not allowing yourself to be limited to the role that you have at that point in time uh so going out and 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 leading the drive on winning new clients when when people might not expect that of you will start to make heads turn and make people think of you as that partner before you've become a partner so being impatient for your own um, progression is is no bad thing um, identifying a niche uh, where you can become master or mistress of that niche area uh, helps to make you indispensable um, and 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 then just generally uh, being you know, consultative. I mean, you're really just listening to your peers and your clients and and trying to develop that sense of emotional intelligence so that um, you you not only listen, but you then put into practice what you've just learned and and then and then make sure that people understand that, that you've done that and how you've done it and why you've done it. Um, uh, hugely important to, to to progression through any business, I think. Um, so there's no one secret um but those sort of things have helped me enormously um and you know although i have been crips man and boy um i wouldn't um encourage people not to look around you know as every now and then you should test your place in the market and make sure that you're um you know you're you're an attractive product in the marketplace even if you're not looking um because it 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 makes it keeps you in touch with the marketplace um and makes it um, and it will make sure that those that that you work for understand your value and sometimes you have to remind them of that and and i always i always like it when uh, more junior members of the firm come to me and say um actually uh, i've i've had an offer or i'm looking around and this is the reasons why because we can do something about that um and uh, that's a very healthy conversation to have okay and do you think that your younger self would have anticipated that one day you'd become senior partner? <laughs> I Thinking back on that trainee all those years ago. I don't think that the, the trainee, uh, Mike Scott, would have uh, thought about it uh, that far ahead. I think he was probably sort of looking at the next step. Um, I think he would have hoped. I think I, I always I, I joined and stayed at Crips because I always thought it was of a size where I could uh, I had a better chance of determining my own future um, and self-determination is important to everybody, I think. So finding an organisation where you can do that uh, is really important. And so I did I probably did think I was in the right place to carve out my future and that that ultimately might lead to a position of this kind. And if you had him sat beside you now, what advice would you give to him? Um Probably the same advice I've just uh, summarised in terms of finding a mentor, uh, you know, acting above yourself, uh, pretending to be that person who you're aspiring to be. uh, And then you will turn into it. Um, And and as I say, just listen uh, to others and develop that emotional intelligence because that's going to serve you well. Okay. And just finally, I mean, you've got a huge amount on your plate um in the work context but to relax what do you do <laughs> um well i i i like to keep fit uh, so I, I i run i play squash i play tennis and golf um and what do i love to do uh, i love to make a fool of myself in some way with friends and family uh whether it's uh you know singing dancing or whatever and i've got three teenage daughters uh, and who i who i like to try and keep keep up with <laughs> <laughs> and fail miserably 
uh, and and that that pretty much fills my time all of that and uh, and so yeah my 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 most relaxing times are are probably with them and with my family yeah well mike scott thank you very much indeed for your time this morning it's been really nice to find out a little bit more about your work at crips and obviously um wish you all the very best for your role as senior partner thank you sarah it's been a pleasure <laughs>